This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. You only need to talk to country-based owners and trainers to realise that the Tab Highway concept has been a runaway winner for Racing New South Wales. The scheme met with some opposition when introduced in 2015, but it wasn't long before the Tab Highways captured the imagination of regional horsemen. Early days, trainers like Matt Dunn, Matt Dale, Danny Williams and Terry Robinson dominated the weekly highways, but now there seems to be a different winning trainer every week. For bush owners, the prize money has been a revelation, while punters love the highways as a betting medium. From a media viewpoint, the highways seem to throw up a good story most weeks. The Tab Highways are a key component of the new face of New South Wales racing. Regular watchers of the Sky Racing television coverage and listeners to Sky Racing Radio will be familiar with the voice of Cole Hodges, who covers thoroughbred race meetings from almost 30 venues in the Central West. He's passionate about race calling, he's a great lover of the thoroughbred, and he doesn't waste an opportunity to promote the sport in a very busy racing region. Cole was born and reared on a property near Bogan Gate, a tiny hamlet between Parks and Condoblin with a current population of around 300 people. He learned the art of shearing by watching the contractors in action when they came to shear his father's sheep every year and it wasn't long before he was working full-time in the Central West. He was destined to spend 30 years working in shearing sheds, which by his own admission taught him many of life's most valuable lessons. He fell in love with racing at age 14 when his dad took him to a picnic meeting at Bajerabong. He thought it was the most exciting thing he'd ever seen. He devised a pretty cluey method by which he could escape farm chores on a Saturday afternoon to listen to the Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane races on ABC Radio. Respected race caller Bob Gunn was the person to give Cole Hodges the opportunity to get behind a microphone and a pair of binoculars for the first time as a professional caller. His achievements in that role and the esteem in which he's held by the New South Wales racing industry were reflected in the Order of Australia medal bestowed upon him last year in recognition of his services to the industry. As we speak to Cole Hodges on Sunday, May 17, he's getting ready to call yet another Parks Cup, but he's been able to find the time to join us on our podcast. Cole, you must be getting pretty close to half a century of Parks Cups. Yeah, it'd be very close, John. I actually called my first uh, horse race on the 3rd of October 1970. Uh, that was a race over at uh, Uh About a month before that, I called a one harness race at the Forbes show, but uh, that was won by Border Ridge, tra- ridden, uh, driven by Johnny Nealon from Grenfell. But my first actual yeah. uh, gallops race was uh, at Goolagong. Well, Parks is one of your closest race meetings, Cole. You live in Forbes, what, a half an hour drive? That's right. I nearly called a home game. It's a bit different than some of the other tracks I go to, John. And what's your longest drive uh, on your current schedule? 
Uh, Brogan Hill did Brogan Hill for about 12 years, John, but uh, I've had to give it a miss the last couple of years because I've had clash meetings with Tobo meetings up here, but it's nine hours out there and nine hours back. Yeah, oh, pretty long hike out the Brogan Hill. 40 years ago when you started as a full-time caller, many bush tracks were pretty crude. Amenities were primitive, racing surfaces were substandard, sometimes running rails were conspicuous by their absence. The improvement today, wherever you go is astonishing. John, um, yeah, in those early days, uh, there weren't photo finishes at quite a number of tracks, John, and, uh, gee, there were some good arguments, I can tell you. Uh, the judges certainly copped some abuse different times. And, uh, yeah, and, John, also, they used to run races like beaten stakes. Um, uh, horses didn't run, uh, didn't win in the first four or five races. Uh, they were allowed to nominate for the final race. It's not like computers nowadays, John. I had to read the uh, nominations out for the beaten stakes. They were written up on the blackboard. Then they did the barrier drawer, and away they went. Yeah, uh, things have changed a lot, John, but mm. a lot of credit to Racing New South Wales. By gee, the standard racing and the tracks has really lifted over more, more so more uh, recent years, John, and the prize money has kept a lot of trainers in the game. In fact, there's more trainers around now than I've ever seen, John, and uh, mm. when they're paying right back to 10th place and that sort of thing, John, it's really encouraged people to get into horses. Mm. Well, you were one of six kids born to Frank and Olive Hodges on a farm at Bogan Gate. Now, your early schooling took place at a little dot on the map called Gunning Gap, which was a brisk pushbike ride from Bogan Gate. And you're telling me, Cole, you were one of three kids in your class. Yeah, there was three in sixth class. It went down to first class. Uh, the one teacher taught the lot and... Uh yeah, the best part was when the school inspector used to come around. He used to come around from Bathurst or Orange, and he, he might, uh, maybe three of the classes might have to do work, and the rest of us would go out and play all day for about two days while the inspector was there checking the teacher out. But, uh, yeah, it was a great great experience going there, uh, John, and uh, I think that's where I got the first taste of race calling, John. I used to organise uh, uh, races uh, around the big uh, yellow box tree, a big circuit there, like a uh, circular trotting track, and... I was I, I always started off 12 yards behind so I could be at the back of the field and see what was going on and yell out the top of my voice how the race was going. <laughs> and you use the girl students as horses? Yes, uh, I suppose in, in the uh, nowadays, context of nowadays, how things, we better not go too much into that, John, because uh, I suppose it's a bit sexist. Yeah, everyone <laughs> participated anyway, John, yeah. You completed your high school in Forbes and you got your HSC, so you must have been paying attention. Oh, John, I was pretty lackadaisical at school, I can tell you like that. I, I was more interested in playing cricket and tennis and things like that, John. But, uh, yeah, I got I got through um, year 12. My hand was shaking when I went up the mailbox to get the results. And, uh, yeah, I got through that okay, yeah. You couldn't get enough of the ABC racing service on a Saturday afternoon. Unfortunately, uh, Dad earmarked a few chores for you on Saturday afternoons, so you had to make yourself scarce and you devised a very sneaky scheme which enabled you to keep out of Dad's sight and hear the races at the same time. Yeah, Dad's unmarried sister, Auntie Ruth, she lived next door, a cottage just uh, right next door to us on the farm, and she used to hide me under the bed of a Saturday afternoon. Oh, gee, I was amazed listening to, you know, Joe Brown and Jeff Marnie and, you know, later on Ken Howard and that. And I, I, I often hear Dad walking around outside, where's that boy? You know, he hasn't locked the calf up. <laughs> Got to milk the cow in the morning. He hasn't got the calf locked up. And, 
he hasn't chopped the wood for the fire tonight. So, yeah, yeah. no, but that's where I got my first taste. And, oh, gee, I was just amazed by those great callers, uh, John. When the shearing contractors came to Dad's property, you were pretty interested in what they were doing. Yeah, John, uh, yeah, great uh, days just sitting on a tin. Um, I could only watch until I had to head off to school at the Gunning Gap Primary, so they got there at start at 7.30, so I had to, I had to be gone by 8 o'clock uh, to get to mm. school and then I'd rush home of an evening and probably see them there for about the last half hour, but, yeah, it was just something about it and... John, it sort of fit in all right with the race calling later on too because I couldn't basically, with the races being sort of all different days of the week, I could wrangle it around where I could, you know, uh, work in the shearing sheds and take days off, whereas in a nine-to-five job I probably wouldn't have been able to do that. Do you look back with pleasure on almost three decades as a shearer, searing heat, big blowflies and a permanently sore back? It's a tough old game. It's a tough old game, John. They did a study, I remember, it was, it was, I read it in the, the Telegraph and uh, some years ago, and they did some, uh, they did a, a study over through South, uh, the University in South Australia, and they strapped some uh, gear on the shearers, and they came up with the uh, theory that it was one of the toughest games in the world, uh, the amount of weight that uh, uh, shearers lost each day. Mm. Yeah, John, but oh, gee, it was, you know, I met some wonderful fellas there, and one thing I learned, you were always punctual, and you didn't ever let your mates down. Gee, I've seen shearers, including myself, go to uh, shearing sheds feeling that crook or, you know, like, <laughs> you know, nearly, nearly with a broken leg. Yeah. But you'd be wanting to finish up by, say, Thursday night and move on to the next place. And if one fellow let you down, yeah. um, you know, you had to stay there for, for half, half the next day. So, mm. yeah, it was a great uh, work ethic I learnt there, John, and, uh, and some great blokes. And they're still mates of mine too, a lot mm. of those shearers. Yep. You know, an old shearer told me once, Cole, that he'd only seen one teetotaler in 40 years of shearing. <laughs> it's obviously the dehydration factor. Uh, well, they I, didn't run across, I didn't run across him, John. I can assure you about that. Uh, <laughs> I suppose uh, sometimes John would go out shearing way out near Canamble and all that sort of places, but they'd be big properties out there and you'd camp out in uh, shearer's huts, like tin huts out there and had a shearer's cook and you'd stay out there for weeks and uh, weeks on end, just come home and, um, you know, weekend I'd come home for the races. But, uh, mm. yeah, and one of the, uh, the shearer's cook out of quite a few of those places was Reggie Coles, the grandfather of uh, the great jockey Malcolm Johnston and uh, the father of Les Coles who won a Melbourne Cup. Yeah, goodness yep. me. So uh, you do it all again. John, I don't know about that, John. I'm, I'm still feeling after effects and I've been out of the game for a long while now. Mm. But, uh, yeah... Every bone used to ache, John, and there's one day I said, well, my hair's started to ache now, so I think I'll give it away. <laughs> you know, the local radio stations uh, like to take a broadcast of their local meetings, the gallops, trots and the dogs, and the voice of a man called Bobby Gunn became very familiar to you. He was the voice of Western Racing, and he was the man who arranged for you to call one race by way of an audition at a Goolagong race meeting. You must have been scared stiff. Oh, John, it was on the back of a truck, and I always remember the race. It was won by a mare called Mini Bell, trained by Dick Cornish of Orange, mm. uh, ridden by uh, Bruce Gentle, and uh, Bruce Gentle's son, Brian Gentle, uh, had a trainer's licence for a fair while. I think he's now a foreman for Steve Jones, a well-known scone trainer. Mm. But uh, Mini Bell won that race, 
And later on, she became a broodmare, and she had a very good foal called the Fun of It, John. I think I've heard mm. you talk about the Fun of It. It was trained by Ray Guy and won races in Sydney. Yeah, the Fun of It was a very useful horse. He was one of the Hyperion thoroughbred syndicates in the old days. He used to race in those black and pink quarters of the Hyperions, and he won six or seven races on Metropolitan Tracks. He was out of Mini Bell, eh? Yeah, that's all right, John. And, uh, yeah, Bobby Gunn, as you mentioned, he called the races around here for a long time. I think he called on the provincial circuit for a while up around Newcastle. Mm. But uh, he, I used to listen to him calling the Parks Trots in particular. This would be before they went over the um, you know, the racing station for the TAB. There was no such thing as TAB in those days. But mm. I used to hear him calling horses like General Scott and Ramrod and from the Parks Paceway. And he was a great caller and he called all the gallops. And, uh, yes, uh, he was the bloke who gave me the break and... Uh, uh, always appreciated that, uh, the late Bobby Gunn, for getting me started. Well, the Easter weekend of 1971 is one you've never forgotten. There were meetings everywhere. Bob couldn't be at every place, so he sent you to a picnic meeting at a little place called Fifield between Trundle and Tullamore, and this was your first professional engagement. I presume there was a fee involved. Yes, I think I might have got $10 or something like that, John. Um <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, Firefield, there's a pub there and a, a few houses. And But uh, like everywhere else, John, they were great racers. And I always remember there the McMahon family out there. Uh, they were very much involved with racing. And their colours were pink with a pale blue sash. And I'll see those going around today. I think it's the hotel. Gee, or just Lord of Helicon or Prince of Helicon. Mm. They're still racing horses, John, in our area. Goodness me. We mentioned the Goolagong track, Cole. It's long gone. In fact, there are several old racetracks around the West that are long gone. Oh, yeah. Tullamore, Trundle. Uh, Trundle used to have two or three galloping meetings. They used to have uh, three harness race meetings and a couple of harnesses at the show. Uh, they don't race anymore. Womboyne was a great little picnic meeting. Uh, Fifield, no more. Canoundra. Uh, John, surprisingly, Canoundra, does, uh, they had uh, harness racing there. I don't think they even have the harness racing now, but... Uh, they had uh, three or four gallop meetings there, and, yeah, they, they don't race anymore. There's quite a lot that have gone by the wayside, John, over the years. Well, this is the right time to mention your involvement at the trots and the dogs, for that matter. Parks was and still is a very strong trotting town, and you tell me that one of your favourite horses was a pacer called Diamonte Hanover, who was trained in Parks. He was a great little horse. And he won a string of races at Harold Park. Col, I called him often. Yeah, John Molly Hanover is a tough little uh, pacer. And yeah, he was a horse that just captured my imagination. He'd run several times in, in, the, in a week. And John, I think he did pretty well in the Inner Dominion too, didn't he? Mm, yes, he, he ran in the heats. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah no, he, he, was a, he was a terrific, uh, terrific pacer. I called, the, I called the harness race at probably eight or ten years, John. Uh, the Greyhounds got going uh, a number of years after I started uh, calling and called them for probably 15 years, I suppose, the Greyhounds. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it came a bit uh, too much and uh, I'll just concentrate on the gallops now, John. Mm. Pearl's Fling was another prolific winner in the Central West, trained and driven by a great character called Toby Weeks from Molong. Yeah, Toby Weeks. It wasn't ever a champion, Pearl's Fling, but you'd be... You'd be listening to racing in Sydney on the Friday night. I'd be back at Parks on Saturday night, and it'd probably be somewhere else again Sunday. Mm. Uh, I don't know even if they raced in Sunday those days, but it probably, you know, often they'd be at a race, um, you know, twice in the same day. And 
Mm. Yeah, great little pace of Pearl's Fling. That's just another one that really captures my imagination. You saw a fair bit of a horse called Cocky Raider, who was one of the best of the 1970s. He was trained at Goolagong. Goolagong keeps popping up by the late Jack McWilliam. He won 39 races in all, 18 of them at Harold Park, and sometimes he'd turn up in a free-for-all at Forbes or Parks or Peak Hill. I'm sure you called him more than once. Yes, John. Uh, I call a lot of the McWilliams horses, Gordon and Jack McWilliams. They always had uh, really, really good horses, and, uh, yeah, it was always a pleasure calling the McWilliams horses. They, they had some top-flight paces. No doubt about that, John. Cocky Raider's greatest claim to fame was his narrow win over Lucky Creed in the Australia Day Cup at Harold Park. Now, Lucky Krieg, that night, Cole, was going for 24 straight. He was off 12 yards, Cocky Raider was off 24 yards, and the crowd, and it was a big one, went absolutely berserk as those two champions came head and head down the straight. I'll never forget it. Yeah, I bet you don't forget uh, Powerfast Adios and Hondo Gretnick clashes too, John. Oh, yeah. Uh, John, they, uh, actually, they used to have a free-for-all at my hometown of Forbes, and those sort of horses, Palfas, Adios and all that, I remember Brian Hancock used to bring his top horses up uh, up to Forbes. And, mm. yeah, they a lot of those top horses, they were trained around the country areas and they raced in the country areas quite often. You saw some outstanding race drivers in that golden era of harness racing, including the legendary Tony Turnbull, who celebrated his 90th birthday just recently. But you tell me, Cole, in fact, you insist that the best driver you saw in that part of the state was the late Max Grant. Yeah, well, having said that, John, uh, I've got enormous respect for the uh, Turnbull family, Steve and the whole crew. They're just an ornament to harness racing. But Maxie Grant, there was something about Max Grant. He he was just a class act he was. He came from Canoundra. And, uh, uh, John, I think he might have even drove a, a New South Wales derby when he had a really good horse at one stage, you remember? Yeah, yeah King Ranji. King yeah, Ranji. Right, King Ranji. Oh, yeah. I won a stack of races with Max as the driver. We mentioned the Bajerabong picnics in the introduction, a meeting that you love and a track you love. They've got a 100 years of racing under their belts at Bajerabong. Uh, they celebrated that centenary last year. They irrigate the track out of the river and there's the smell of fresh paint everywhere at cup time. The whole town gets behind it. Yeah, 50 people live in Bajerabong, but everyone gathers up all the local truck drivers and the shearers. It's, um, uh, everyone gets involved. They start working uh, around about oh, early December at Working Bees and they go right through to when the meeting's held in February and so I think it's the only club I know that's got its own club colours. All the buildings are painted white. They've got red roofs, red trim. They even fly uh, Bajirabong flags, uh, white with uh, red lettering on it. But uh, it's a marvellous track. It's like a bowling green, uh, the, the course itself. Um, uh, Bajirabong, I've seen some very, very good horses after winning in Sydney have come to Bajirabong and won there, including Smokydale, a, re- a really a good horse from, this, uh, from over here at Forbes. But... Uh, yeah, John, they're meticulous. So I was at a working bee one day down the back straight and we were painting the, uh, in those days it was pipe rail, yeah. and I was painting the rails and one of the committee men, he said, uh, did you paint underneath that rail, that pipe underneath? Yeah. And I said, no, no one's going to see that from way over there, just down the back straight. He said, what happens if a jockey falls off his horse? He'll roll under that rail and he'll look up and he'll say, geez, they don't do a very good job here at Bajirabong. <laughs> <laughs> 
I understand his point. Highly unlikely, of course, but I, <laughs> I understand his point. But, Cole, they don't stop just at the race meeting, do they? Uh, they have a fashions in the field and live entertainment after the last. They're still going at midnight. Yeah, they have three-legged races and, uh, yeah, a heap of foot races after the last. That's, that's a bit of an institution down there at Bajirabong. But, John, we've got a pretty big picnic circuit here and we've got some really, really good horses um, the race around the picnics are pretty strong. Don't dismiss picnic form when you're doing your form on some of these tab meetings either because uh, I remember Stuart Anderson, he had a horse called Zvelte. He placed it very, very well at the picnics. It won four in a row. It went down and won in Sydney. Smoky Dale won the Jirabong Cup. Uh, you know, back in earlier days, I know there was a horse, uh, might have won out at Tottenham many, many years ago. I think it ended up when they were Villiers. So, yeah, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're a great day at the picnics, John, and they give those horses a chance that are probably on the bit on the way out, some of them, but give them a chance to keep racing. I love the translation of the native name Bajirabong. You know what it means. Big tree by the water hole, John, and a uh, big sign up there as you approach the race course. Uh, yep, it's, uh, uh, yeah, there's some uh, some pretty natty names around among some of these smaller places, John. Cole, I'll just get you to stand by while we clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with Cole Hodges after this. With entries closing on Friday, May 22nd for round two of the English Easter sale, a recent announcement by the New South Wales Health Minister couldn't be more timely. The government's commitment to relax restrictions on gatherings in public should be in place in time for Easter round two to be held on Sunday the 5th of July. If all goes according to plan, 100 people will be allowed inside the Riverside Auditorium with another 500 in the spacious area outside. The sale will cater for horses who were not entered for Easter round one or those passed in during that online auction and supplementary entries will strengthen the catalogue even further. Although the recent online auctions produced some stunning results, vendors and buyers will be anxious to return to the exciting atmosphere of the Riverside sale ring. Make note, vendors, entries close for Easter Round 2 on Friday, May 22nd. My special guest is Cole Hodges. I know you enjoy every one of the feature meetings you get to call in the West, but I happen to know there is one particular meeting for which you've got a very soft spot. Yeah, um, I suppose we'd have to say in our Central West here, the Wellington Boot, I suppose that's my Group 1 race. Yeah. John, I don't call Group 1 group races out here, but, uh, you know, I've seen Lister Pickett ride there, um, Gay Waterhouse trained a great horse, Iron Horse, to win a, uh, a Wellington Boot. Uh, it's always... It's, it's always something that the country trainers uh, really strive to try and have a runner in the Wellington. But even if it starts 100 to 1, if they can scrape into the field, they, they just love it. So it's a great atmosphere up there for the Wellington boot uh, and uh, always one of the great race meetings. That race, call will be 30 years old next year. Well, there you go, John. And they had to really battle to get the name Wellington boot because uh, I remember at the time uh, they didn't want to Give them, that, give them that name. They thought it was inappropriate, but uh, it's sort of it's uh, give a give a race a catchy name, and um, yep, and it, it certainly has caught on. Just looking at some of the horses you called early in their careers who went on to the big stage, Sniper's Bullet was the most recent. He won his first two races at Dubbo by big margins, ridden by Ben Hull and Matthew Carl, respectively. 
and apart from one other start at Canberra later on, he never raced on a country track again. Yeah, Tracy Bartley training, a very good ex-jockey, um, uh, owned by Mr. and Mrs. Atkinson, and they still race a lot of horses around our area. Yeah, Sniper's Bullet, he was, he was uh, one of the standouts of the horses I've called over the years. I suppose I'd have to mention Rising Prince, John, mm. uh, Vincent Deadly Spoon, uh, Galloper. He came to Falls one day and he won an Improvers handicap. I think he was 7-4 to four on in the old odds terms. Mm. That's in the red, 7-4 to four on. Dale Jeffries rode him and he won an Improvers. Now, that was just the next step up from a maiden around the bush here. Mm. And I remember after we were standing around the bar and I said to a couple of fellas, gee, that thing, that they got a bit of a rap on that thing that won the Improvers, that Rising Prince. I said, oh, gee, I don't know. It, I don't know whether it's going to win too many more. And, of course, we all know it won a Cox Plate to him. <laughs> <laughs> well, following that discussion, Cole, he went on to win a Villiers Summer Cup double. Now, there's something only good horses can do. A mile race, uh, the first leg of that Christmas double, and, and less than a week later, a mile and a half race. It's very, very hard to do. A Villiers Summer Cup double. He won a Chipping Norton Stakes when it was still a Group 2. He won a Queen Elizabeth, which was Group 1, as you said, a Cox Plate and an LKS McKinnon Stakes. Your judgment that day was slightly astray, Colin. John, if I'd been a bookmaker and he'd gone to Bathurst, say, that after that run at Falls, I probably would have laid him. <laughs> <laughs> you would have. You saw a very fast filly by the name of Kisses for Cathy, who was trained at Backer Burke by a great character called Bob Jackson. Now, as a two-year-old, she won consecutive races at Gilgandra, Canamble and Narromine, and then she turned up at Rose Hill to win the Silver Slipper of 1984, ridden by Neil Payne. Couldn't she scoot? She sure could. Um, uh, Mab Fully used to ride her in uh, some of those early races, uh, but when she went down there, Neil Payne on board, and a uh, wonderful character, Bob Jackson, uh, Wampers Station, way at the back of Burke, and... She actually arrived down there for the Silver Slipper in the cattle truck, yeah, uh, would you believe? True. And yeah, uh, yeah she, she was a she was a flying machine. And if you're looking for sort of romantic stories of the turf, like out in that outback area, Stony Rise came out and won that heat of the country championship over at Dubbo mm. a couple of years ago. Trained right up near Hungerford, right up near the Queensland border, and uh, yeah, as, um, trained by James Hatch. That was another really really good horse from out there that mm. way. One of the Sydney Turf Club directors. Uh, brought Bob Jackson up to the broadcasting box after that silver slipper and I actually got the opportunity to interview him on the Macquarie Network. He was something out of a Damon Runyon short story book, wasn't he? He was, he was unique. He certainly was unique. They used to, he had a nickname Spanner Jackson. He used to play a fair bit of football and, he, and he was, he, his position was in the scrum, so you, I'll just leave it up to your imagination why they called him Spanner. <laughs> I was saddened to learn some years ago, Cole, that he lost his life in the most freakish way. Changing a car a tyre on his uh, horse float on the way to Geary races, John, and uh, he was hit by a car. Yeah, really, really sad way to go for a fellow who was as tough as some of those tough old trees out in the outback. And then there was Tolmax, the horse they called the Molong Mud Eater. He was trained by the Molong Postmaster, Trevor Doolman, and he didn't race until he was a six-year-old because of a chronic scouring complaint. Mother Nature got him over it. How did they do it? Jack Cantrell had an orchard. At, the owner had an orchard at uh, Orange, and he fed him a mixture of clay and apples, of all things. 
He stepped out of Parks, John, in a maiden handicap. First start in a race, they backed the horse from out west from about three three to one into even money. And uh, then the money came from Tolmax, about six to one into odds on. And there was just something special about the way he just exploded away from them in the straight. I thought, this horse looks different than most of the horses I call. Mm. A jockey called Errol Monroe rode him that day. And uh, Tolmax won, I think he won about nine out of his first ten and oh, gee, what a great record he ended up. He won a Group 1 race at George Main, I think it was. Yes. John and yes. uh, fourth in an Epsom. Wonderful, wonderful horse he was. Mm, he won a tramway handicap, which was a Group 2. Yes. Malcolm Johnston, I think, won one race on him in Sydney, but it was Tony Marnie who became his regular rider down here. Yeah, the ex-New Zealand Tony uh, came over and uh, he rode Tomax in all those big races, uh, John, and uh, yeah, he's just, Still riding up until a couple of years ago, Tony Marnie, around uh, some of our Central West tracks. You had great admiration for a couple of old geldings who went around bush meetings for years and years and never stopped winning despite huge weights. What do you yeah, remember John, of Border Ghost? Yeah, it was trained by uh, now Bobby Foran. He was a great caller out this way, uh, the late Bob Foran. He called 60 Gilgandra Cups. Mm. But, uh, yeah, Border Ghost was trained firstly by uh, Bob's father, and then uh, Bob trained him uh, in his later career. He won over 50 races, and Blazing Arrow, owned by the Ridge family up at Ngoni, he won over 50. Mm. I suppose one of the toughest horses I ever, ever saw, John. He's only been retired a few years for a star of the universe, trained by Percy Thompson of Golgong. Mm. Uh, he, a couple of days before he had his 15th birthday, star of the universe, he ran in his last race at Canberra. He ran fifth in a tab race. Uh, a couple of starts before that, as a 14-year-old, he'd run second in a big field at Gunnedah, but... John, he had 196 stars, 21 wins, 45 placings. He won them everywhere from Ngoni up near the Queensland border to Louth, uh, that famous meeting in the outback, right down um, to Canberra, Armidale up north, and he was the most insignificant little horse you would ever see. I mm. often used to say, Star of Universe, probably the smallest horse at the meeting but with the biggest heart. Mm. The yep. soundness factor, Cole, amazes me. Uh, to go around so often, and, and don't forget there's track work in between the races, uh, sometimes on crude tracks, and somehow they remain sound. Soundness is an inherent thing. You got it or you ain't. Yeah, that's right too, John. How many how many of these um, really, really beautifully bred horses, huge ability to have about one or two starts and, you know, they're at the back gate because they break down, but mm. and then you get those tough ones that just keep seeming as they keep going over. Bernie Pena rode him at Canberra and she said, I think this whole horse could keep going until 20 years of age and still race well. Mm. But, John, they brought that rule in uh, and at that particular time uh, that you couldn't race past 12 and uh, uh, Percy Thompson then had to retire him just mm. before his 15th birthday. Yep. Of the old brigade of the Western New South Wales riders, you had great regard for Reg Payne, Neil's dad, for Merv Singho, and Matey Malloy, who died only last year, Cole. Yeah, Matey Malloy, he um, came from a pretty famous racing family, the Malloys around the Central West. Uh, he won a um, Doncaster handicap on a horse called Persian Puzzle, came from near last in a field of oh, 24 or 5, mm. right up near the fence, and beautiful ride it was. Uh, yeah, great riders. Uh, they, were, they were tremendous riders at the professionals. And, of course, um, yeah, on, on the picnic scene, there was John O. Johnson, Bob O'Neill, Frankie Ward, Tom Malloy and his son Danny Malloy here, and Rhonda here. Uh, yeah, a great, a great lot of riders have come from out of the Central West here, John. 
Of the more recent top riders in the area, you nominate four as your favourites. Bill Aspros, Matthew Carl, Greg Ryan, and one we mentioned a little earlier, Dale Jeffries. Dale Jeffries won a cup at every single race meeting in the Central West. He, he won the Bassist Cup and he said, well, that completes the, uh, the uh, full hand. He said, I've won them all. And he did ride a very fast horse called Peyton Black mm. for Robert Hall of Bathurst, and she won on the four Sydney tracks. She was uh, a really brilliant little filly. But, yeah, Dale was a, he was a, a, a very good jockey, and he now works uh, uh, as a mentor for some of the apprentice jockeys around our Central West tracks. Mm. Some of the top country trainers could condition horses as well as any of their high-profile city cousins, but they simply never wanted to come to town. You've got a few in mind. Yeah, well, firstly, I mentioned Doug Spence. I suppose Doug was a great trainer over Cara, but I suppose he's one of the big claims to fame to Doug. He was the father of Jane, uh, Jane Spence, now known as Jane Parsons, who was the first uh, female to ride a winner in Sydney. She certainly was on a mare called Our Fable at Canterbury at a midweek meeting. Yes, uh, trained by Viv Miller. He was a great trainer from over Carajon. There was a, there's a heap of great trainers around this area. Of course, you had Johnny Lundholm up at Canamble, a legend, still riding in rodeos mm. in his 70s. And then uh, who could uh, bypass Rodney Robb out at Ningen? He's still winning a stack of races, Rodney. And, you know, he wins those races with, you know, horses, uh, gallopers that are out of mares that won a couple of races around the Western area and probably buy a $1,000 uh, stallion, raced by a lot of his Western clients out there. But... You know, he's had good Sydney winners too, and Rodney is just a, he's a great black for racing. He's a wonderful fellow, John. It's not uncommon to see 50% of runners at a race meeting ridden by female jockeys. You remember the days when a handful of very brave girls would turn up at a picnic meeting and compete in exhibition races against one another. Yes, Margaret de Gonneville was one of the uh, main ones in those days. She's still training with success up the uh, north coast there, and, uh, yeah, they were only allowed to ride in exhibitions. Then they brought them in, bought the, uh, where they could ride in one race on a picnic card, but there was no betting allowed on it. And now, John, it's a complete uh, transition. Uh, like Cathy uh, O'Hara and uh, Tracy O'Hara, they both did their apprenticeships at Dubbo, and I saw them going through the, you know, the long-involved process and riding and all those um, barrier trials, but, you know, they've done very, very well as riders, but... Yeah, the stack of terrific riders now. Young Madison Wright, she rides really well at our picnic. She won the premiership last year. And, yeah, a lot of the meetings, John, there's more female jockeys there than what there are male jockeys. Just a few more questions, Cole, before we let you get away to the Parks Cup. You're calling the races one day at a place called Tullamore, which is now defunct. You were standing on an elevated platform when disaster struck. What happened? Yeah, uh, me and uh, uh, one of the senior members of the club, Mr. Tom Carey, uh, the white ants had eaten into the uh, uh, little <laughs> race calling stand. It yeah. crashed down just as about the jump, and we both ended up flattening our backs on the ground, and uh, someone sprinted over, and fortunately there was a ladder nearby. They propped it up against the old tin secretary's office. I climbed <laughs> up the ladder, and I got, the, got them from the home turn onwards, John. Now, Colin, you tell another story that is very amusing uh, I've got to say that I doubt its authenticity on occasions, but you swear it's true. And you tell me you've met witnesses over the years who were there on the day. Tell me the story about an old trainer called Jack McEwen 
who had a few runners in one day at the Peak Hill races and he was taking them there on an old truck. Yes, that's right, John. Jack McEwen, uh, Greenwood Jack, who's you'd better know, and he had a farm not far from our farm. Often used to go over and talk to Jack and he pulled out his uh, uh, newspaper clippings and uh, he was going to Peak Hill uh, with the horses in the, flow, uh, in the truck and it broke down a couple of miles out of Peak Hill. He sent his offsider into Peak Hill. He walked into Peak Hill. The circus was in town. They let an elephant back and they dragged the truck with the horses on board in from out where it was broken down into the uh, race course. And, but as they approached the race course, the elephant saw the other elephants and started trumpeting and uh, the horses went berserk and nearly tipped the truck over. <laughs> <laughs> Carl, it's great copy. You're not pulling my leg, are you? No, they're spot on. I, I agree with Jack. You trust him to the end of this earth. <laughs> yeah. Well, you witnessed and you had the honour to describe a little piece of history at a Cowra meeting in 1997. You called the race in which the fourth triple dead heat in Australian racing history occurred. The horses were Sir Lawcrest, Churning and Sleepers. Now, Cole... You actually suggested, uh, you know, in the seconds after you finished calling the run on, that this was very close to a triple dead heat. You had your eye in that day. I'm right on the line at Cara, John, but it's the first time we've ever said it. It was No, I've never said it since, never said it before, but as I hit the line, I said this could be, the actual words were this could be a three-way dead heat. Mm. And uh, as it turned out, John, they took it all 25 minutes, I think, to declare correct weight. Shane Cullen, the steward, he wanted to make absolutely sure mm. uh, before they – and then uh, the next day they took it to a picture theatre in Orange and blew it up to, you know, really, really big size and there's no way in the world you could separate those three horses. Mm. All right. For the trivia buffs, we'll just check. It was Cowra, 1997. It was the fourth triple dead heat in Australian racing history and the horses were Sir Lawcrest, Churning and Sleepers – and Cole Hodges was the caller. Who rode those horses? Uh, Tracy Bartley rode one of them. Mark Galea rode another one. And Dale Lund rode the other one. You called a horse winning a picnic race one day who would later occupy a very prominent spot in racing folklore. He was famous for all the wrong reasons. Uh, John, fine cotton. That's the he used that's to race the horse. Around. Is that the horse we're talking about, John? That's the one, yeah. Yeah, he used to race around Geary and uh, that area. And, uh, you know, of course, people, I was at a Trundle race and people couldn't believe this fine cotton had burst. They had this huge betting plunge, but that, they, they backed this horse all over New South Wales. John, he raced around here, and Kevin White from Cary used to ride him sometimes at the picnic races. But another jockey who rode him was Neville Selwood Jr., the son of the great, late, mm. great Neville Selwood. Yes, I think he won a race on him at Mudgee. I did an interview with young Neville Selwood about that very thing, Cole, some years later, and uh, it, it was just astonishing. He was watching the race at a Warwick Farm meeting and he looked up at the television monitor above the bar and he said to his mate, that ain't fine cotton. <laughs> <laughs> he, he told me the story himself. I don't blame him and... Uh as a little bit of trivia, John uh, Neville Selwood, the great jockey who was uh, killed in a race fall overseas, he is buried just uh, near the front gate of the Kudal Cemetery, which is up uh, towards Orange. Mm, that was 1962. <clears throat> Cole, in closing, I want to acknowledge the fact that you are a fully accredited 
international race caller. For a number of years, you were guest caller at a famous charity race meeting at Vanuatu. Now, we've just been talking about a famous ring-in. I believe the horses who competed Vanuatu are not all thoroughbreds. Now, John, uh, Terry Barley, he was a, uh, the steward there, you know, the former um, chief steward in Melbourne, uh, and Brett Wright, he's still a steward down in Victoria, I think. And, uh, yeah, I got the call for 14 years. Some of the races had, a, you know, there might have been two thoroughbreds in it. Uh, one might have won a race a long, long time ago, say, at Rockhampton, a very weak maiden, and might have, another one might have won a weak maiden in New Zealand. But they'd been against horses, albinos and... Uh, you know, three-quarter breads and uh, pie balls, and, uh, but <laughs> it was about 6,000 people cheering them on, John. It doesn't matter where you race, John, as long as it's a contest. And the people over there, they just wanted to win those races just as bad as when the people lead them out for the Melbourne Cup. Yeah. Uh, it was a wonderful experience, John. 14 years I went there and uh, just outside Port Vera, and uh, they folded up now, John, so I was very lucky and very fortunate to be able to call those races. Col Hodges, it's been a great pleasure having you on the podcast and a fascinating exercise to profile your amazing journey. On behalf of New South Wales Country Racing, mate, thanks for a magnificent contribution. And thank you, John, because I always admired you as a race caller, John, and I had a lot of pleasure listening to you and it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Good on you, Col, and have a great Parks Cup Day 2020. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.